Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? Giggling like a bunch of young bros in a schoolyard. Well, let me tell a joke. Five guys sitting in a bullpen, San Quentin, wondering how the fuck they got there. What we do wrong? What should have we done? What didn't we do? Whatever. It's your fault, my fault, his fault. All that bullshit. Finally, someone comes up with the idea. Wait a minute. While we were planning this caper, all we did was sit around and tell fucking jokes. Got the message? Fellas, I don't mean to holler at you. This caper's over, and I'm sure it's going to be a successful one. Hell, we'll get down to Hawaiian Islands. I'll roll and laugh with all of you. Find me a different character than I'm here. Right now, it's a matter of business. With the exception of Eddie and myself, and we already know, we're going to be using aliases on this job. Under no circumstances do I want any one of you to relate to each other by your Christian names. And I don't want any talk about yourself personally. That includes where you've been, your wife's name, well, you might have done time for a bank, maybe, arrived in, say, Petersburg. All I want you guys to talk about, if you have to, is what you're gonna do. That should do it. Hear your names. Mr. Brown. Mr. White. Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blue. Mr. Orange. Mr. Pink. everybody welcome back to the dana buckler show my name is dana and i am joined as always by my co-host mr jason waters jason how are you today i'm doing great man thank you hey man welcome back it's been a little while it, yeah we've we been just, we just took april off yeah you know um sometimes life just kind of jumps in the way and you gotta there was you gotta pivot yeah there was definitely a, a few things going on but we're back yes we're here and this is you can see the title. Listeners can see the title of the episode. This is episode one of a nine-part miniseries where we will be breaking down the films of a one Mr. Quentin Tarantino. Hopefully one of ten. Yeah. If you can go ahead and just knock that last one out. You know, I'll just interest of full disclosure for everybody. Like we did an episode, the last episode that's on the main feed here is, you know, the films of James Cameron where we yeah. we spent an hour and a half talking about the eight movies that James Cameron did, and we ranked them, and we attempted to do a similar episode on Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> like, yeah, let's just let's just jump into his movies. I'm, I'm sure we can get so, that done. In so, if you an listen hour. to it, and I've got that recording. Like, if you <laughs> listen to it, it's like we spend. 15 20 minutes talking about reservoir dogs and then an hour talking about pulp fiction and i'm just like 
Mm. Yeah, I think we need to go. Each episode needs to cover a movie. I think if we had continued on, that one episode would have been like seven hours. It would have, yeah, yeah. because it, we, easily we really got into Pulp Fiction. So, <laughs> well, so, and so, Reservoir. Oh yeah, yeah. So I think so, we we're two hours into the entire thing. Like, so so nuts. so this this is going to be a good one. No prediction on how long these episodes are going to be, no. but yeah. we are going to do nine, maybe ten. Well, there will eventually be a tenth episode. Tenth, yep. I believe, from what I understand, his new movie begins filming, and I don't want to date this. If you're listening to this a year later. We are in uh, the spring of 2023, and he's supposed to go into production fall of this year. Only thing I know is that the movie is supposed to be set in 1970s Los Angeles or New York. So we're back to L.A. again. Yep. Which, again, that will be a theme with the first three movies. Where do you begin on Quentin Tarantino? (sighs) I think you begin with really what... What drives people to become directors? And I think that's what, to me, that is what defines him is you, you get someone who's not a, a film school, just, I don't even know what you call it, a, a film school graduate that becomes an understudy that 10 years later starts their first movie. This is someone who basically their film school career is watching movies. He he got an education from the cinema, from the cinema. He got an education working at a video store, Yeah, you know, video archives. Yeah. He now does a podcast with Roger Avery and you know, which I listen to every week. I think it's fantastic, but he, he got his education. He actually now was probably minimum wage, but he actually got paid to study movies, <laughs> which, yeah. I mean, anyone who's ever like, I think you, you worked at a movie. Oh, store. Yeah. I, you know, I worked at a local one here in town and it is, it's a great primer for what, what you like versus what you don't like versus what's popular versus what you can make popular. It's, and by the way, for, for a lot of our listeners out there, it's an experience that they'll never actually get to duplicate no. because uh, I've said this numerous times on the podcast. So I'll do this very quickly, but you know, growing up in Canada, every Saturday, my parents would do the weekly grocery shopping. And I, the reason I wanted to go with them is there was a mom and pops video store called funky Fred's videos. Okay. And, uh, when they would drop me off, it would take them about 45 minutes to do the grocery shopping. And I would just go into funky Fred's and, funky Fred's. and it was a big mom and pop store. Yeah. And I would spend that 45 minutes just looking at VHS box covers. Yeah. And they were broken into horror, action, comedy, new releases. And I would literally like just have these mental notes of someday I'm going to watch this. Someday I'm going to watch this. It's it's how I got my introduction to Canon films because wow. the, the movie posters for every <laughs> Canon films always had these guys with these oversized guns. Like I've got to see David Carradine and POW. Well, that's, you I know? mean, that was the greatest thing about the, the VHS rentals back in the day, and even DVDs is I would say... I don't even know half of what you selected was based on the artwork on there. And if it didn't look good, you didn't pick it up and try to read what was about, you know, what the movie was about. And this was back in the day when they would actually have like artist artists painting, like they would paint. Yeah. Look at the cover of like the first four police Academy movies. (laughs) Like they're painted. Like everything was like, it was an actual like work of art. It was to draw the eye in and make you go, wow, I want to rent this movie. But there are so many movies from that era that, like are ingrained in my memory that oh, yeah. that like 
we could do an, we could do our own version of video archives and start recommending obscure movies from the nineteen oh, eighties. Yeah, you know, like here, you know, I think I think Quentin and Rogers they go back to the seventies. I think they're you know. 10, 12, 13 years older than, older than us, yeah. respectively. But we could do the same thing. We had that same experience. And then when I worked at a video store yeah. in the 90s, I think I've told you this story. It was like my, my the, the guy who owned this video store, this was just a business he had that he needed it to lose money. He owned several businesses <laughs> under a under one LLC, and and this one didn't make any money. He didn't give a shit. He didn't care. Yeah, the, the, the guy that I worked for, Dave's Video here in town, he cut hair during the day. And had a movie, like a VHS rental place that I ran on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And for the majority of the time, 80% of the time, it was me in the store just watching movies. Exactly. Because I wasn't allowed to leave. There was nothing else I could do. It was in a gas station. So it was like either go next door and get the gas station taquitos or watch movies. And that's what I did. Let me tell you you something. You just invoked a memory. So, so we did have gas station video stores in Canada as well. Like this is now, this is like, this is the 1980s. All right. This is 86, 87, 88. Like there was uh, a little convenience store called Bailey's where I used to live. uh, You know, it was like a half mile down the road in Canada and my parent, that's it was a much closer drive than Funky Fred. So sometimes my dad be like, let's go rent a movie. And he just had like a small wall of movies. And it was usually like one copy of the latest <laughs> movies. But just to put you, oh, just, yeah. just to paint the picture here, okay? Just to tell you how things have changed. If you looked at this wall of movies, it went up about <laughs> eight feet. And at the very top of that row, were adult movies just out there in the open, okay? Oh, you gotta and, love that. And the way I had it set up is like, you know, I was a little kid. I couldn't see up there. I couldn't see what was going on. That's brilliant. But every once in a while, like, I'd be looking at a movie, looking at, oh, I want to rent Top Gun, and there'd be this dirty old man next to me, and he's reaching up to the top and pulling down copies, and I'm like, what's that? <laughs> so my how things have changed. Oh, and I used to love, because people would kind of walk in, and they'd look at, you know, they'd have their hands in their pockets and they'd be strolling down the aisles like thriller comedy family and they get all the way to the back and they kind of like pivot and come back they're like so no adult films huh I'm like no sir no <laughs> no back room <laughs> so uh, but funky freds didn't have a back room they had a binder like a big binder and what he had <laughs> he, he, had, he had he had all the adult videos he had like the boxes flattened in laminated sleeves oh, and so you friend. would have to ask for the binder and usually it was like a teenager working there excuse me may I, may I see the binder and you would go through it and you'd flip through and that's how you would make your selection god how things have changed this is no <laughs> this is funky fred's females part two there was no internet back then everybody yeah. this is how it was done yeah so that's how that's how quentin gets his education and you know, the guy becomes like an encyclopedia of of not just contemporary hits. Like he was more focused on like I want to say like the off brands, the oh, yeah. off label movies. Yeah, you I know mean, the spaghetti westerns, yeah. the you know, the crime thrillers, um, you know, the Howard Hawks films. Yeah. Like just what he absorbed, he put he, he I, I kind of feel like he he watched those movies and just kinda went, All right, this one scene, I got this. I can see where this can go from here. Yeah. And it's just it's brilliant to see where he took what and, was and made what became. And him and his coworkers were were known they became like local celebrities in that in that part of that Los Angeles, you yeah. know, where you know, you would go there and you would ask them, Hey, what I, I want you recommended this movie. 
I liked it. Yeah. Based on this movie, what would you recommend? And they'd have like 10 titles. We try this, try this, try this. Yeah. So again, you're not going to make a lot of money as a clerk at a video store. <laughs> no. Okay. You're not. See, see Randall in clerks. Yes. <laughs> but you know, along in during the eighties, you have Tarantino. He's, he's an inspiring filmmaker. And he yeah. wants, what do you want to, what do you got to do? You got to write a script. So he writes True Romance, he writes Natural Born Killers, he's shopping those around. And he also, over the course of like three years, tries to make a movie on his own. And, and have, you, have you ever seen like... I have, the, the, I've, I've seen some of the clips from, um, from the, the web, but I have not seen the full movie. It's interesting because, well, the, the full movie doesn't exist because the story goes that, you know, on the weekends, because by the way, film costs a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Like you, when you wanted to make a movie back then, you had to shoot it on film and film cost a lot of money and it cost even more even money more to get it developed. <laughs> yeah. And so like over the course of, I don't know, two or three years, every weekend, he's shooting scenes and he's playing the main character. And there are scenes in that movie, dialogue that end up like entire swaths of dialogue that end up in later movies. Yeah. Like the whole opening of true romance where Clarence talks about his affinity for Elvis. Yeah. He gives that an exact speech in this first movie that. he makes. Oh. So the story goes that a good swath of this movie uh, is sent off to be processed the film and there's a fire at the, <laughs> at the, at the processing place and the film is destroyed and it's gone. Oh, and so they only have like 35, Snippets, 40 yeah. minutes. Now you can find it on YouTube and I've watched it. I mean, it's all cut together and everything, Yeah, but you can see the very beginnings of, he had that talent, especially for dialogue back then. Well, that's the thing is what I, what I think what I appreciate more about him than anyone else. And I would not to take anything away from the big directors, but he's a storyteller first and a director second. Yeah. And I think that comes through in the fact that he is the screenwriter and the director on nearly what all of his movies, except for a handful. Yep. One, what get Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown. Yep. Yeah. So, so as the legend goes, you know, he also writes a script called reservoir dogs and he sells, I think it's, and people are going to be screaming right now. He, he sells, I think it's natural born killers or true romance. He sells one of those scripts for like $30,000 and he wants to use that $30,000 to make reservoir dogs. Yeah. And eventually this script gets in the hands of a gentleman by the name of Lawrence Bender. And Lawrence Bender looks at this and says, listen, hang on, give me, give me a month. All right, I can get you a million dollars to make this movie. Yeah. And eventually it ends up in front of Harvey Keitel, who agrees to do it. And I don't want to get into the whole technical jargon of how this happens. But next thing you know, he's got like a million two to make this movie. Uh, there we go. And a lot of that is on the strength of, you know, Harvey Keitel yeah. reading it. And and Harvey Keitel, by that point, I think could best be defined as a, as a character actor, you yeah. know, big in the 70s. Small small roles in the eighties, but but leapfrogs from this. Oh yeah, as does everybody, <laughs> yeah, everybody, every single person. So the movie we're going to be talking about today is, of course, going to be 1992's Reservoir Dogs. Yes. Now, before we get into the the plot of the film and the discussion of the characters, Jason and I will ask you, and I'll ask you this question on every episode of this miniseries, the films of Quentin Tarantino. What was your first introduction to Reservoir Dogs? So my my first introduction to this was. It was after 
Pulp Fiction had come out. I didn't. So at the time it came out in 1992, I was 13. So my parents, like, I don't, I, I couldn't even imagine this would have come to the Ocala market. Um, you know, we're at that time we were a small, sleepy little hamlet here in Central Florida, maybe 50, 60,000 people. Yeah. Um, it's exploding right now, but I didn't become aware of Quentin Tarantino until Pulp Fiction came out. And when I saw that, that's when I got my introduction to Reservoir Dogs. And I just went, these are two of the best movies I've ever seen. And I'm, you know, at that point I'm 15 and going, who the hell is this guy? I would have seen the movie late 92, early 93. And this would have been, uh, you know, I, I forgot to mention, I'm still living in Canada at this time. But my uh, my sisters, plural, both worked at Funky Fred's videos. Okay. <laughs> the Funky Fred's family. Yeah, I'm telling you. I got to look up Fred. I, gotta, I don't even know the guy's still alive. <laughs> or, you know, that was 30, literally 32 years ago, 31 yeah. years ago. But, you know, one of the benefits of having sisters that worked at this video store was you they could those. get a free movie. Yeah. And they, even though my parents were kind of, you know, well, not my dad, but my mom was very like, you can't watch this. You know, you know. My sister, Lisa, in particular, could, would get me anything I wanted. Yeah. Like, hey, I really want to watch Aliens. Okay, I'll bring it home for you. And I would just call, like, this is back in the day. I would call the Funky Friends video. Can I speak to Lisa, please? Hey, Lisa, do you think you could get me a movie tonight? <laughs> and she could always take a movie home. Yeah. And I, 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 for the life of me, would love to tell you how I heard of this film. Yeah. I think it was just a case of we just got this movie in. Reservoir Dogs. Didn't know anything about it. She brought it home. I watched it. It was too much for my young, then 13-year-old, 14-year-old mind. So, to, I mean, I liked it. Don't get me wrong. I liked it. But just didn't, I didn't have the... It was the, tough to track when yeah, you don't, you, yeah. know, you don't get the context of it. I didn't have the wherewithal. To, right. I remember honestly saying, well, why aren't we seeing the jewelry heist? Why aren't we seeing this? I don't... You know, I, I just, I'm just being honest with everybody. Like, hey, everybody, as a 14 year old, I didn't get it. Yeah. At the time. Yeah. But flash forward to 94, I see Pulp Fiction in the theater and don't actually really have the correlation that it's the same guy and yeah. everything. But, but then I was like, oh, you, I, I could almost tell watching Pulp Fiction, like, this is the guy that made Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Well, it, it will go like that for every single movie. Well, I would say maybe with the exception of one or two. You watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, and you know it's a Quentin Tarantino. 100%. Yep. And we're going to touch on that here in a little bit, because yeah. there there are director's hallmarks mm -hmm. that, that you... There are certain directors you just know yep. who you're watching. So let's talk about the basic plot of Reservoir Dogs. Okay. All right. So the movie is essentially about a group of criminals who are going to be robbing robbing a jewelry store, jewelry exchange. There's yep. a there's a, a shipment of polished diamonds from Israel coming in. Good and job. and this what's kind of unique about this group is they're all put together by like the main figure, the godfather if, if you will, Joe. Joe knows each one of these criminals individually. They don't know each other. They all use aliases. They're not going to talk about anything in their personal lives. The movie starts with uh, them having breakfast before the robbery. Then we flash then forward, jump straight into the action, past the robbery. Then the movie, and again, one of the first true representations of a nonlinear story. 
All right, spoilers for Reservoir Dogs, spoilers for every Quentin Tarantino film in this miniseries. So if you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs, I implore you to stop listening now uh, because we'll have major spoilers throughout the discussion. Okay. All right, you've been warned in three, two, one. So one of the overarching uh, plot devices of this film is that they feel like the people that have survived the the heist, the jewelry store that's gone wrong, they feel like they've been set up. They feel like there's a mole inside their group. They think there's a cop. And, you know, eventually you find out there is a cop in their group and all (laughs) hell breaks loose. I guess that's not much of a spoiler, except (laughs) except when you find out who it is. And we're going to go into get into our character breakdown. And so we will have that discussion. Well, that's I think that's one of the things that I you know, this kind of introduces us to is the jarring effect is that you get this, the movie opens with Quentin Tarantino talking yep. and talking about Madonna's like a virgin, m- like a virgin, the music. metaphor for what yeah. that, what that song's really about. And, and then it evolves into this coffee shop conversation against, you know, among these guys who are about to commit this giant heist. And you kind of get this, you know, feeling like, okay, I'm sort of settling in. I, you know, this is, it's, it's almost going to be funny. It, it, like, it really is. Watch the, watch the first seven, eight minutes of this movie yeah. where they're having this banter about what is Madonna's like a virgin really about. And I love just the line when you have Eddie Bunker who plays Mr. Blue and he goes, I'm not really into that. You know, when she got into all that true blue stuff, I, you know, I, I tuned out. But so, <laughs> so it goes through that and, you know, we'll, we'll dig into more of that later but then all of a sudden you get to tim roth just dying the watching this again today and i've seen this movie several times but knowing that we were going to record today i said you know what it's not a long movie let no. me just let me just put it on again minutes you get our character introductions through the opening credits you see who they all are and you know the catchy song is playing and then halfway through the credits when we're getting into the produced by you know right you start to hear this wailing you start to hear this this screaming over the music and you're just like what is this cut to tim roth back of a car covered in blood screaming making noises it be that gunnel like just like this is how if someone was dying this is how i see them dying that fun conversation that was take that cheeky conversation (laughs) that was taking place at the yeah all of a sudden like it's like pulling a band-aid off like all of a sudden we went from fun a little sadistic but fun conversation to oh what the hell is going on yeah so and i made it a point while i was watching it just to kind of like how long do some of these scenes that are super uncomfortable go on for? Yeah. You know, so you have, you know, we, we have Mr. White, Mr. Orange, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth. And Harvey Keitel, good Lord. And, he, and that car scene just. Listen, I tell, I hope somebody would be with me if I'm getting, <laughs> if I'm shot in the stomach. You know, then they get to their, their rendezvous point, this abandoned warehouse. Yeah. And they have a dialogue scene with him laying in a pool of blood that goes on for like six or seven minutes. And it is, goes on for an uncomfortably long time. Tim Roth does not lay off. It's not like he's just going to be like, all right, let me, let me stop whimpering for a minute. And never stops. I mean, like you just keep going like, Oh my God, someone get him a doctor right now. And what's so crucial about that scene and what the light really went off for me was we've never seen Tim Roth before. (laughs) All right, so this is not an established actor, so yeah. we're we're not seeing like a mainstream actor 
you know, doing this going, God, I've never seen so-and-so do this before. So we have no way of sort of gauging his performance other than this guy is in so much pain. Yeah. And, well, and the other thing too is, you know, we already did the spoiler alert, but you don't realize at this point that he's the cop. Yeah, no, you're right. So you're, you feel bad, you know, you feel bad for him. And then later on, you're like, oh shit, he's the cop. And then you see him shoot. He kills somebody. Yeah, and then, like it just, oh. it's a, this whole thing is just depravity like it's insane so then you have mr pink steve buscemi show up okay who does fantastic in this role he's so good in this movie now he immediately shows up and he is just like right away like we've been set up we've been set up we's been set up yeah now harvey keitel still laying on the ground with uh with tim roth covered in blood and and Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, is just like, no, we've definitely been set up. And then yeah. and this, he's going through it. He's like, here's what happens. When that alarm goes off, you've got two to three minutes for the, yeah. you know, like laying it out. He's like, we were set up. Those guys were there from yeah. step one. He goes, and, and, and the cops didn't show up until Mr. Blonde started shooting. So, so again, we are not seeing this robbery. Yeah. But we're, it's being like the exposition of what happened is being so perfectly delivered and it's kind of being repeated over and over again. No, no, that's not what happened. This yeah. is what happened. This is what happened. And you start to visualize it. Yeah. But the thing is, remember first time watching, okay? <laughs> we don't know who Mr. You, Blonde is. Yeah. Because we don't know who anybody's names are just yet. Yeah. Okay? So when he's talking about Mr. Blonde started, boom, boom, just started just started shooting everybody. Yeah. Anybody like, who's not there could have been them. Could have been. Like, that's yeah. brilliant. And that's something I try to take myself out of, like, having seen this film multiple times i'm trying to take it through what a first time viewing oh, would yeah. be like and it's like oh you don't even know which guy we're talking about God, yeah so they go into a side room they start discussing a little bit more harvey Keitel sort of kind of sees the comes to reason he's like oh shit we really were set up yeah and then and you start thinking like mr blonde it's got it's got to be mr blonde and then yeah. and then you win a really interesting thing where you get occasional flashbacks to the escape you have harvey, harvey Keitel saying to steve buscemi like well, how did you get out? And then you see him yeah. being chased down the street and, and a like, badass escape. Like, yeah. God, I'll get hit by a car. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then shooting cops is like, <laughs> there was a certain undertone to this movie, to these characters, you know, where they talk about, what well, did you kill anybody? Ah, just a few cops. Like they're yeah. so cavalier with, they'll get in arguments about Madonna songs, but when it comes to killing, they're like, ah, oh, I just killed a couple just cops. cops. Just yeah. a couple cops, no big deal. And then you see it later on in the movie, you're like, fucking Holy A. Shit. So they're back and forth. We've been set up, we've been set up. Enter Mr. Blonde. And Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen. Played one of the best characters he's ever best played. Best performance he's ever given. Good God. Hands down, best performance he's ever given. Then we realize, okay, this is Mr. Blonde. They're going at it. They're arguing. They're screaming. So Mr. Blonde has just... I mean, do we even get a number? He's just executed maybe 10. Yeah, they make they make a reference where Harvey Keitel says, how old do you think that black girl was? 20, maybe 21. Yeah. And it's just, you know there's been a massacre. Yeah. And we also still get some more character <laughs> exposition because we get a flashback yeah. to Harvey yeah. Keitel in the office with Joe. Yep. You know, talking about, you know, Joe asks, you know, how how's Alabama? Yeah. You know, because... Tarantino had this whole shared universe, MCU, had this whole shared universe way before the VUSQ or the uh, or the MCU. Right. And then we get a flashback of Michael Madsen. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, and, you know, to set the stage for future movies, he plays Vic Vega. That's correct. Who will eventually be the brother, the tw- 
should have been the twin brother yeah. of Vincent, Vincent Vega, Vega from Pulp Fiction. From Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Absolutely. I really like this scene, you know, this flashback scene with Michael Madsen, with Nice Guy Eddie. Nice guy. And, oh, and Jeff, yeah. Because it really does. It's so important because it establishes that he is probably more, he's probably closer with, with father and son than any of these other the guys. Loyal. You would think Harvey Keitel would be, yeah. but it's it's him. Like he's been to prison for them and could have gotten out by yeah. just saying, "Hey, these were the guys that had me do this." I love when they like they're talking about, you know, who's your pro, who's your parole officer? Seymour <laughs> Scagnetti. Oh, Scagnetti and Chris Penn's just like Scagnetti. Fuck, you know <laughs> who shows up in Natural Born Killers? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, not him, but, <laughs> but the, the name. Yeah. So, but I love how they're like, oh, "I got to get a job. We'll get you a job down. Come down to Long Beach. We'll get you a job on the uh, work in the docks. I'll work in the docks. So I don't want to lift any boxes." And he's <laughs> like, "You aren't going li- to." This is how a no-show job was actually yeah. explained to me. So when it would happen in The Sopranos, I'm like, "I know exactly <laughs> uh-huh. how they're doing this. You have a time card. It will be clocked in and clocked out at the end of the week. You'll get a check. Dock workers do real well." And uh, the Skagnetti fuck wants to come down here. Hey, we, we sent him off to Reseda to pick up a load of shit. You know, I, I love, I want to spend more time behind the scenes with these guys. So you, you, you realize that Michael Madsen, Mr. Blonde has gone to prison for them, has, was caught in a warehouse full of stolen stuff. And all he had to do was mention Joe's name and he would have walked. Yeah. And he did four years. Yeah. So. Mr. Blonde has a surprise for Mr. Pink and for Mr. White. Uh, walk out to their car, walks that, out to his car. And this is where we get the first of what will be many Tarantino signature. The camera is inside the, the trunk yeah. and we're going to open up the trunk. And in there is a police officer. Yeah. Marvin Nash. So I, I, I saw on, I can't remember if it was IMDb. I think it was IMDb. That scene has been recreated I want to say it was a little over 200 times. The trunk. The trunk opening. The POV trunk shot. Yeah. On, I mean, everything from like Rick and Morty to the Simpsons. Sure. I mean, that has, that has entered the zeitgeist of the, you know, our, our entire world just because of the weight of that scene. We get, so we now have the cop tied up in a chair inside the warehouse, inside the warehouse. You've got Mr. Blonde. You've got Mr. White, Mr. Pink. They're punching him. They 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 yeah. want to know who the rat is. Yeah. They want to know who the rat is. Meanwhile, let's not forget Mr. Orange still laid out on the yeah. side, bleeding Gut to shot. death. Yeah, dying. All right. In walks nice guy Eddie, Chris Penn. And he is he's actually kind of the voice of reason in this scene. Yeah. You know, he's like, why are you torturing this cop? <laughs> like, you know, he's already seen us. He, you know, he, you beat this man enough. He'll tell you who started the Chicago fire. Doesn't make it fucking so. <laughs> and Chris Penn does. I mean, he's, he's so good. Rest just, in peace, man. Yeah, God, he's he's so good in this. He's, he's so good in fucking uh, true romance. Uh, like, uh, he's great in this one. Yeah. So, you know, at this point, you've got, you know, Mr. White freaking out because Mr. Blonde, he went crazy. You know, nice guy Eddie is like there is there's no setup. You know, please someone tell me, please someone tell me you got the diamonds. Somebody's got the yeah. stones. Please, please, pretty please, tell me you got the stones. Mr. Pink's like I got him, and this is this is where nice guy Eddie says, "All right, Pink, White, come with me." Yeah, my dad sees all these fucking cars yeah. outside. Well, what happens is this leaves in the warehouse the poor police officer who's tied up and has been beaten, Mister Orange. Sitting in the yeah, laying down, laying in a pool of his own blood. And Mr. Blonde, 
who psychopath we now know is a psychopath based on everything we've heard we haven't seen it yeah. but we've heard and that's what's so disturbing about yeah. all this is like you're like oh so he just murdered a bunch of people what's he about to do now because even steve buscemi says oh he was crazy then but he seems like he's okay now yeah you know, so you're like, oh, so is this guy is crazy. Like he's he the only one I trust is not the fucking cop because he went batshit crazy. Uh, and then yeah. I'm just going to say this. Like, I struggled <laughs> to get through this particular scene, even though I've seen this movie multiple times. I don't know if it's at my age. I don't know what it is. But this entire scene where Mr. Blonde He's so sadistic and not in a fun way, not in a, oh, he's the anti-hero, like he's just evil. <laughs> and I really struggle to get through it this time. And he, and here is what I think just makes Quentin Tarantino the star. They don't show it. They don't show it. His, no. So for, for those who haven't seen it, Michael Madsen cuts off the cop's ear. Yeah. While dancing to Steeler's wheels. Yeah. And, but he also, does, in the middle with he also does say to him. You know, I don't give a shit what you know or yeah. don't know. I'm just like, going to torture you. I'm going to torture you because I like because it. Because I like it. Yeah. You can say what you want. I've heard it all before. And then he, he puts a piece of duct tape over his mouth. and But just that. <sighs> then we get a, a classic, a now classic Tarantino long single take. He has cut off the police officer's ear. But wait, let's talk about this first. So um, Michael Madsen starts we've got the was it k k billy super sounds of the new of of the the 70s 70s. weekend so michael madsen during and after cutting off his ear is dancing to stuck in the middle with you which for our next episode when you get uh john travolta dancing as his brother you're looking at it going well hot damn these guys they really enjoy a they, good. They like to dance. Really enjoy a good dance. Um, I was um, a couple things about this particular scene. So uh, I read a lot of books on on movie history. A lot of books, and I, I really focus on seventies, eighties, and nineties. And I just re- finished a book. It was all about. It was sort of a two stories at the same time. It was the rise of Sundance and the rise of Miramax. Oh, nice. And. Uh, the person that was running Miramax that's now going to rot in prison. Um, rightfully so. Rightfully so. Um, he bought the way this would work. Like you'd show a movie at Sundance and then these distributors would come in and they buy the yeah. movie. And when they bought the movie, it was theirs. Yeah. They could do whatever they want. In fact, Miramax was infamous slash notorious for buying a movie at Sundance and then completely re-editing the movie and bringing the actors back and shooting other scenes and either the director of the movie was on board or they weren't. Fuck off, yeah. And when they were doing test screenings for Reservoir Dogs, there was a particular test screening in New York City where both, I have to use their names, Harvey and Bob's wives were at that test screening. And Tarantino was at the test screening and the infamous ear scene comes <laughs> out and both wives get up and leave in, in horror. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Harvey, fuck it. I have to say his name. everybody. Yeah. So Harvey, Harvey sits down, sits Tarantino down and says, the movie's great. The movie's wonderful. 
you just you got to cut that ear scene out. You know, you know, you're 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 going to lose half the audience. All you know, so this is Harvey's words, not mine. All the women are going to run out of the theater when that happens. Tarantino's is like, no, not that's that scene is going to stay. It's one hundred going to hundred percent going to stay. And apparently, like to this day, he was the only one that had the ability to stand up to really? to, to Harvey. Mm-hmm. And I guess if the legend is true, Harvey said, "Well, fine, the scene stays." And just make sure you let everyone know that it was Miramax that let you keep that scene in there. So it also sounds like him. Yeah. So that way I thought that was really interesting. And then you recommended a documentary that's on Tubi right now, yeah. which covered like the first eight, the first movies, eight, the first yeah. eight of uh, films. And there's a interview with Michael Madsen where he needed to hear the actual song. For those yeah. who don't know, like the, the inner workings of movies, like if you ever see like, concert scenes in a movie or nightclub scenes or anything yeah there's actually there's never there's <laughs> never actually playing. any music playing that people are just miming all yeah. right so he needed to actually hear the song playing so they actually had it playing in the background so he was actually dancing to the rhythm of the song uh, which makes it even more terrifying because you're like dear god what it, when you're watching it for the first time you're like what what is he about to do with that straight razor I know, and he pulls like, it out of his cowboy boot. He pulls oh. it out, and he's just you know dancing around. You're like, no, but this is this great oh scene. Like, and I, ne- I I never got it before, but he pulls out the razor, and he opens it up right by his face, and says, "Do you ever listen to K. Billy's Super Sounds of the '70s?" He just holds on that shot for a second with his face and the razor right next to it. I was like, that's brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. So he goes out of his he goes out of the warehouse yeah that's the yeah one long 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 single take goes to his car gets a can of gasoline walks back in and you're terrified the entire because you know what he's going to get and then you see it and you're like oh and you know he's capable of doing it he just cut this guy's ear off you know he's capable of doing it and he just starts splashing (sighs) and then i think the part that hit me the most was after he covers him in gas he then rips off the duct tape so the cop can beg for his life. And I mean, I, at that point, I almost hit the fast forward button, even though you know he yeah. doesn't light him on fire. Yeah. Because surprise, when he's about to light him on fire, out of nowhere, he gets blown away by Mr. Orange. Yeah. Laying down, empties a clip into him. And surprise, he's a cop. Well, and then also surprise, the the cop who's been tortured knows, knows he's knows, a cop. He knew. So and, and you're like, oh my god, you got your ear cut off. Why didn't you be like, hey, that dude, that bro's a cop. That's he, guy. that to I me, mean, like, that's uh, one, that's one of the biggest like reveals of this movie is yeah. this poor patrol officer <laughs> knew he was a cop and endured all of this and never gave him up. And I think maybe that's that's one of the other tenets of a Quentin Tarantino film is never assume anything. Yeah, never assume that you know what's happening because. At any point, he can pull the rug out from under you and you just go, oh, you, you, you thought that he didn't know that? Yeah, no, he did. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. So then we get then we get flashback to Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, yeah. uh, and we <laughs> learn all about his quest to be, he's an undercover cop. And yeah. he's been working a long time to get in, to get into like Joe's circle. And he finally is. And, you know, he, he's that given, indoctrination to become an undercover is just, you know. Yeah. He's like, did you tell him the commode story? And. <laughs> And, you know, it's it's so brilliant. He's like, so he's telling this story about trying to pick up marijuana at a train station. It's a bullshit story. But Tarantino is showing this yeah. to us like it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's literally the, you know, the step by step on you want to be an undercover agent. Yeah. 
here you have to you have to own your own story yeah. every single aspect of it like it happened it made me wonder in the days of social media the world we live in now we're all so online how could you even be an <laughs> undercover at this point yeah, i mean seriously i mean they got to get you at like age 10 and be like hey you can never go on social media like, forever yeah. you got to have to like you're, you're joey dimebag your wife's on facebook and yeah. she says your name's terrence yeah and like, like and once, once you turn 18 you're going to the police academy yeah. and blah, blah blah but you can never have any social media we're going to create a profile i mean I just I would actually be really good because I don't have a whole lot of social media. I'd take one click on Twitter and I I could be an undercover guy. Listen, I've said it before and I'll say it again. <laughs> if it wasn't for promoting this podcast, I'd be out of the game. Yeah. I would be done with social media. It is okay. I don't want to even do it. <laughs> yeah, twenty minutes yeah. later and I I could be I could be a yeah. cop. Fuck social media. I'm not a I'm not a cop. Yeah, <laughs> you can be anything. Five years from now, you can be anything you want, but you won't be a you cop. Won't be a Massachusetts cop. <laughs> Uh, you sure about that? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I can love that movie. We got to do the deposit sometime. God. She fell funny. <laughs> you see that? She fell funny. You need to get help. Seriously, Frank, you need help. So we get this whole flashback. We learn that he's how he's infiltrated. And, yeah. and, and we also see that he's been spending a little bit more time with Harvey Keitel. Yeah. And, and Harvey Keitel is really like. He's got like this father figure. Yeah, it's to a him. kind of like a mentor yeah. to him. So, so Tim Roth is kind of like the new guy. It's probably going to be his first job. Kaitel's explaining to him, you know, what happens if the manager doesn't want to, you know, give up the key or the safe yeah. or anything? Is that like you take the butt of your nose, smash it, butt of your gun, and smash it into his nose, and yeah. then and then cut his finger off? You know, tell him his pinky's next. You know, all that good stuff. But no, I mean, it falls into. The, so this is, I would say, continuing on. This is probably the only Tarantino movie without a strong female lead. That's correct. Oh, you're absolutely right. In fact, there's besides, you know, the poor lady that gets shot. I don't think there's yeah. even a female in the movie. So, you know, it kind of follows into that whole, you know, undertone of absentee mother, surrogate father. Yeah. I mean, you've got Tim Roth looking towards Harvey Keitel and Harvey Keitel looking at him going like this. You know, I got somebody that I can teach. You know, yeah. I'm. I'm getting ready to get out of the business this is somebody that can teach to get into the business exactly so there's just like strong familial bonds in there too this whole time though we're still wondering what happened to mr brown and what yeah. happened to mr blue mr brown was played by quentin tarantino mr blue was played by eddie bunker a real life criminal who was actually in prison with danny trejo at the same time <laughs> i didn't realize oh yeah, that. yeah. i knew he was in prison didn't know he was with danny so trejo. and they're they're good buddies <laughs> and you know so then we get another flashback of tim roth and harvey Keitel making their escape and this is where you find out what happened to tim oh, roth yeah. and you, you you earlier in the movie you heard Kaitel say to Buscemi, I killed a couple cops. And then you see how he did it, and you're uh, like, fuck just me. Just double gun to the, yeah. you know, pew, pew, like, good Lord. They're making their escape. They go to carjack a lady. She's got a little 38, snub nose 38. She shoots Tim Roth. And by this point, you know he's a cop. By the way, again, a thing that just really hit me this time, he's standing by watching Harvey Kaitel kill, these two, cops. The, kill yeah. these two cops. And you're like, Oh, you know, you're not, you're undercover. You, you should have shot Mr. White by this point. Yeah, you should point, have, like, yeah. drop a, you know. yeah, you need to, you need actually need to shoot him. Yeah. Because you're, you're in way too deep at this yeah. point. And like, they, the other cops have to know that. Yeah. I mean, if the patrolman knows that, yeah. then, you know, yeah. It's, I mean, at some point, like, he's in too deep. Like, yeah. buddy, you're probably going to lose your job, probably going <laughs> to go to jail if you survive this. Yeah. So he gets he gets shot by the lady they're trying to carjack. He carjacks a lady and she shoots him in the gut. And then he shoots and he and shoots he back. Fucking kills he, her. he kills her. Yeah. yeah. That's when I went, what am I watching? 
Like, so that's just a gut reaction. Just you shot me, I'm shooting you back. The um, pet cop. The conversation <laughs> between the police officer, the the one that's been abducted, like the our, our poor guy without the ear, and Tim Roth. You know, at one point, the the he goes, his name is uh, Marvin Nash. That's the police officer's name, and and uh, and Mr. Orange, his name is Freddie Newendike. Freddie Freddie Newendike. And he Marvin says to to Freddie, "How do I look?" <laughs> you know, and you're looking at this guy, and this oh my god, he's so fucked up looking. Oh God bless him. And it holds a couple times on that where the ear used to be, and yeah. it's just like oh my god, and. Here comes nice guy Eddie, Mr. Pink. Well, the first thing, when, the one the thing that hits me in this movie, and it's so impactful, and I don't even know why it hit me the way it did, is when Tim Roth just goes, I'm fucking dying here. I'm yeah. fucking it's, dying it's like, here. Fuck you. Fuck you. I'm fucking dying. When he starts, like, it's a guttural just. Oh, yeah. The performance that comes out of Tim Roth. And he's British. <laughs> and by the way, he's British. By the way. Uh, you know what? Oh, I, I think just, he's that, British. Maybe he's Scottish. Maybe he's from the UK. <laughs> I'm showing my ignorance right now. He's European. He is from across <laughs> the pond. <laughs> to my friend Eamon listening in Dublin, I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just hearing him deliver that, like, you you think you got it bad? You got yeah. your ear fucking cut? I'm fucking dying here. So we get the return of nice guy Eddie, yep. Mr. Pink, Mr. White. They walk in. They see, Now they see Mr. Blonde. Dead. Who's been? We didn't even talk about that. Who's yeah. been gunned down? He's been gunned down. He's by just Mr. Orange before now, he could light so him he, on fire. He, yeah, he's laid down. He's laid out. He's dead. And because oh, you think there's this glimmer of hope that now that you know we know that Mr. Orange is a cop and we know that you know poor Marvin Nash knows who he is, <laughs> you're thinking, oh my God, they're they're going to get out of this. Yeah. Lest we forget. Remember, everyone. First time viewing this, we don't know Quentin Tarantino. We don't know that he's in love with the 1970s anti-hero movies where yes. nobody ever survives. Yeah. So we don't know. We think, oh, my God, they're going to. There's a hero somewhere. We're going to get out of this. The one we think we know is dying. Nice guy. He walks in. He goes, uh, what the fuck's going on here? He's like, he's like, he cut the car. He cut the car. Mr. Orange is like, he cut the cop's ear off. He poured him a gas. He's going to burn him alive. Oh, this cop? And he just pulls out like a bomb. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. And then we get this again. There's this scene where Chris Ben is going through the like, this is what Mr. Blonde meant to us. Like yeah. he could have. And now you're going to tell me after all we've been through and we're making good on our promise, our commitment to him that he's just going to decide out of the fucking blue. And yeah. he goes, why don't you tell me what really happens? And you see how wide his eyes get? Yeah. Why don't you tell us what really happened? Oh, my <clears throat> God. And if it had not like literally if it had not been for Mr. Blonde, just executing people yeah. in the jewelry shop, it would have gone completely differently. Yep. I mean, they would have all been like, yeah, you know what, Mr. Orange, he's got to be the guy. Enter Joe. Oh. He goes, uh, you know, he basically was, he says, yeah, he's the rat. He's yep. the one. He's working with the LAPD. He's the only one he's, that I wasn't, wasn't sure 100% about. sure about, Harvey Keitel. should have known. That's your proof. <laughs> That's your proof. You know, yeah. because Harvey Keitel has seen this guy shoot somebody. He's seen he's seen Mr. Orange kill somebody. He yeah. figures he's on the level. Yeah. And we get the first, you know, uh, good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, triple standoff. <laughs> and doesn't end well. No. Nope. Doesn't end well. This is the part now 
Mr. Pink runs out this after everybody. I, argue. I really, I gotta think that Mr. Pink got it. I'm telling you, I know you I've, listen, I've listened to it with my earbuds, and you can hear the background. Yeah, you can hear shot. You can hear uh, shots going off. You can hear it. But I gotta think he got away. Then you have, you know, Harvey Keitel. He's still alive. He crawls up. He basically wants to tell Mr. Orange it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And this is where he fucks. Up. Mr. Orange just absolutely fucks up. He goes, Larry, Larry. I'm a, I'm a cop. I'm a cop. And oh, and you know, for those who haven't seen the movie, we'll we'll That's the thing. We'll end it there. He doesn't have to say anything. Doesn't have to say anything. If you, he had, if he had kept his fucking, you're mouth about shut. to get out of this, buddy. Yeah. You're about, in fact, in fact, Larry, you might actually get a reduced sentence because you saved a cop's life. Yeah. You know. So I mean, that, that begs the question. Like, That's what happened at the end of Ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, sir. We're not going there. <laughs> um, I'm like, how are they going to get out of this? Like, they're clearly never going to get out of this. Uh, oh, that's he, he saved the cop's life. So he's oh, yeah. mighty. I, I, I stand by. That was a good movie. Ah, anyway, we're going to digress. But what I what I love about that is it just that that need to confess. That's also in some of his movies yeah. that he just, you know, he maybe he doesn't know that it's going to he's going to shoot him in the head as soon as he says he's a cop, but he needs to get it out there. Like, Hey, if you're going to die for me, know that I'm, that, that, that yeah. this is me. This is who I am. Doesn't end well for Tim Roth. No, or Harvey. Or Harvey Guy Guy I mean, the, the assumption is you, you hear the gunshots, but you never actually see either one of them really. I, I'm just trying to, we have to set the stage here. And again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing something that Tarantino said on the Joe Rogan podcast. Again, one of the few times I've actually listened to the Joe Rogan podcast. Depends on who the guest is, if I'm being honest. Right. You know, if it's Tarantino, I'm 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 gonna watch. I'm gonna yeah. listen. You know, he just talks about how the seventies were just anti hero films. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you look at a movie like Dog Day Afternoon, you know, even Serpico, Joe, uh, Apocalypse Now, yeah. I mean, The Deer Hunter. These movies don't have happy endings. Right. It wasn't about making a happy ending. It was about telling a story. The 80s brought back the happy ending. Everybody yeah. had a happy ending. Yeah. You know. Uh, form- formulaic. Yeah. You know, there's there's a few exceptions. Platoon doesn't have a happy ending. Rain Man doesn't really end on a, <laughs> on a happy note, you know. <laughs> You know, in the 80s, your anti-heroes, and again, this is, I'm, I can't take credit for this, this is something Tarantino said, that, you know, in the 80s, your your anti-heroes were a little bit more charming, and they always had a redemption towards the end of the movie. Right. And, you know, they they did, they learned their lesson. They had yeah. their Han Solo moment yeah. and came back, and you're all clear, kid, now let's close this place and get out of here. So, one of the things that I think Tarantino did smartly with Reservoir Dogs in 1992 was bring back the anti-hero and bring back the, Oh, this is not going to end well for all parties involved. No. And I mean, literally I think what he did was take that eighties formulaic mentality of there is, there is a hero and he's going to save the day. And with this kind of nonlinear storytelling, just turn it on its head from the onset. Yeah. Like when you see Tim Roth dying in the backseat of that car, you realize you don't at that point realize that he's you know the the cop, but you realize this is not going to go well. Yeah, like, right into the movie, you start to think like, what what did I just sign up for? And it it unnerves you from the onset rather than oh well, let me just go ahead and watch this the entire way, hoping there's going to be a good resolution. This sets you jarring from the beginning. It does, and it starts. It kind of starts uh, like 
oh my god, every Quentin Tar- subsequent Quentin Tarantino film, you have no idea how this is going to end. Yeah. And I don't want to jump forward to episode nine, but let me just say, <laughs> I was when we we're getting into the third act of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the theater. I was like, I think I want to go. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I know I, how this story ends in real life. I don't want to be here I for can't this. Do this. Before we wrap things up, I know we want to talk about the numbers. We're going to talk yes. about the numbers for each one of these. But before we do that, I think it 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 bears a quick discussion on, you know, we said it earlier in the episode. There are there are certain directors where you once you've seen one of their movies, yep. you recognize their style moving forward. Oh yeah, James Cameron, Christopher Nolan, Spielberg, Spielberg, Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, but I think Quentin Tarantino is probably the most recognizable director in the sense of, you know, within the first three minutes <laughs> of any Quentin Tarantino film, you're seeing a Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah. Now, why is that? Well, I think first of all, it's definitely the opening credits. It, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> well said. <laughs> you can't get past that. Yeah, well said. <laughs> um, these are the things that I wrote down. All right. So obviously, first and foremost, with the Quentin Tarantino movie, it's going to be the dialogue. Yes. He writes dialogue like no one else. He writes dialogue like people talk. And I think we had mentioned it. Well, I think we mentioned on our, our lost episode that he had said before, you know, if you imagine like a movie like heat or, you know, something else, you see the, you see the bad guys, you see the, the, the quote unquote henchmen. But if you were to imagine them, 10 minutes before in the car discussing an episode of I love Lucy. Yeah. That's, that's what he wants to capture. Not the, the overall gratuitous action, but the dialogue before that action, the, the mundane conversation. (laughs) So so he captures the dialogue on the way to the bank heist, right? Not so much in the bank heist, but you get to see everything from the, the prologue to the story, to the, to what happens afterwards. And that becomes, uh, becomes so clear within the first eight minutes of that becomes so clear within the first eight minutes of reservoir dogs. Oh dear God. Yeah. We have a conversation about the metaphors of Madonna's <laughs> like a virgin. If you, <laughs> I challenge you to think of like a virgin a different way. After yeah, no, how can you, how can you, <laughs> you have, you also have a conversation about the night, the lights went out in Georgia. Okay. <laughs> Pam Greer. Pam Greer. You have you have the you know, and then you get into like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, Joe pays for breakfast. He goes, All right, I've got breakfast. You guys should do the tip. It should be a buck a piece. And you know, nice guy is like, All right, cough up some green Everybody for the little lady. Yeah. And then you have Steve Buscemi say that he doesn't tip. Now as someone tip. as someone who uh, works at has worked in the service industry my entire adult life. Yep. I take uh, exception to this. Uh, there, there will, I, I can tell so you. I, th- I think it's worth explaining. Yeah, well, because Tarantino. Because they don't make minimum wage. Yeah, you know, he obviously had never worked as a waiter before because yeah. he got some of these things wrong. Yeah. Okay. You know, um, but I do like the fact that he gets, you know, Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, he gets immediately gets pushback from everyone at the table. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You don't tip. I've been sitting here for 45 minutes. I expect my coffee to be refilled yeah. at least three to four times. Yeah. Like, he goes, he goes, we've been here a long time. You know, <laughs> when I have coffee, I want it refilled six times, you know, and Michael Madsen again. We don't know anything about these guys. He's like, uh, six times, uh, maybe she's too busy. <laughs> and he's like, uh, too busy shouldn't be in her fucking vocabulary. You know? <laughs> and, and then Mr. White, 
again, Harvard Kentucky goes, he goes, you have no idea what you're talking about. Waitressing is the number one job for female non-college graduates. Yeah. The one job that any woman can get and make a living is because of their tips. And he gets this little, little move and it's like, this is the world's smallest violin playing. And, you know, he goes, these ladies aren't starving. They make minimum wage. No, they, no, don't. they don't. Maybe in other countries. I remember when I, when I waited tables back, you know, back in the 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 nineteenth or the twentieth century, I was making two dollars and seventeen cents an hour. That is correct. Yeah, um, but when minimum wage was like five fifteen, five seventy five, because they rely on your tips. Exactly. Yeah. When I first started, two dollars and thirteen cents. Yeah. Okay. That's that's what you made an hour. Yeah. And your credit card tips were taxed. Were taxed, yep. You were supposed to claim your cash. Everybody's always supposed to claim those those cash. All right, so there's a quick quick breakdown on how it used to work versus how it is now. So in the 90s and in the early 2000s, it was probably realistically a 50-50 split whether people would pay cash or credit. Yeah. Now, your credit card tips, you had to enter them in in order to receive them, and those were taxed. Yeah. Okay. But there would be nights where nobody paid with a credit card. Like I remember, yeah, back so, in the day. So you rarely. were you were required by the IRS to claim ten <laughs> percent of whatever your sales were. So if you yep. sold a thousand dollars in food and beverage, you had to claim at least a hundred dollars cash, whether you got that or yep. not. Yep. That was the scary thing. There, there are people that work at, you know, like these Bob Evans and, you know, these little shit, little shit casual restaurants yeah. where, you know, I'm sorry, there are people out there that tip like shit. And, you know, these, these poor people that work there might have $800 in sales, make 60 bucks, you yeah. know? And if that back in the day, you would have to claim that you made, you know, whatever, you know, a hundred, you know, fucking yeah. 80 bucks, yeah. you know? So there used to be signs all over the back of the house, like from the IRS, be sure to claim oh, I remember 10% this. of your sales in yeah. cash. And, and the, like, fuck you, Uncle Sam. And, you know, and that's the thing is they used to, they used to, do, they used to audit people in the service industry all the time. Yeah. Now. That has changed significantly now. <laughs> now, I can tell you as somebody who runs a restaurant, like it is 90% credit card transactions yeah. now. Those signs have long since disappeared because yeah. credit card tips are automatically claimed. I can't even tell you the last time I paid and cash for a bill. So I will say to anyone out there listening, if you have the ability, even if you pay with a credit card, you should, I don't want to get an audit for saying this, but. <laughs> IRS would be like, who is this Dana Buckler guy? <laughs> you should always try to tip in cash. And for those listening from the IRS, I don't agree with him. Like this, yeah. no, no. Uh, uh, hypothetically speaking, <laughs> hypothetically I'm not saying speaking. that I would tell you to do this, but hypothetically speaking, because there's also a fun fact: a lot of restaurants now, those credit card tips, they go on a paycheck every two weeks. Yeah. So the days of making you don't them get cashed out, yeah. every single night. No, yeah. no, and, and that yeah. that doesn't happen at my restaurant. Yeah. So, again, this is me. Maybe I'm a little biased. Let's but, nitpick where we can because. But let know. me just say, like, if you can, tip in cash. And by the way, tip. Frickin'. Okay. Here, here's my. I'm gonna jump on your bandwagon. Fifteen percent is not the standard anymore. Twenty percent is not the standard anymore. Twenty percent. Oh. We're we're in an age of rising inflation. Like, if you're not tipping twenty five percent. You should when you get to these little pay stations when you're like, oh, there's a there's a square app there. I'm tipping for something I never had before. Guess what? You probably should. Yeah. People well, who, people who handle your food should be taken care of. 
extremely well. And here's another thing. If you're not all doing right? it yourself. Every restaurant in America, the waiters, the bartenders, the servers, whatever, they actually have to tip out money themselves. All right. Yep. Some restaurants is as high as 8%. Yeah, okay. you got your expos. I mean, yeah, your your bus boys, your yeah. food runners, your bartenders. You have to out of your pocket. You have to tip these individuals out based on your sales. Yes. So at any restaurant you go to, if you're if you're leaving somebody a twenty percent tip, and you're like, ah, I'm leaving them twenty percent. Chances are you're actually leaving them anywhere from twelve to fourteen percent. Yeah. So my standard is this: if I go to a restaurant or a bar, and I have left a twenty percent tip. That means it was the worst service exactly. I've ever had in my life. But I would never not tip. The, the minimum I have, I will tip. If it's bad service, is twenty percent. If it's decent service, is thirty. I have no problem whatsoever going fifty and above. Oh yeah, for yeah. for service, it's outstanding. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because I will say this: if you go to a restaurant in your town over and over again, <laughs> this is a fact. This is yeah. not. This is not speculation. This is a fact. There's a saying in the restaurant industry, all right? We remember two types of individuals, <laughs> those that tip really well and those that tip really shitty. Trust yeah. me, we remember we remember them. And they change restaurants quite frequently. And if you don't tip that great and you're finding that it's harder and harder for you to get a table at a restaurant you go to, <laughs> chances are... Yeah, tagged. Chances are it's you. They know who you are now. And if you tip really great and you find it so odd that every time you go to your favorite restaurant, they could be on an hour wait and you're being shown right to a table. Keep doing what you're doing. We should just start calling them the Mr. Pinks. Yeah, that's a Mr. Pink. Yeah. Don't be a Mr. Pink. All right. So. All right. That was a long, long. <laughs> that was a good dive. digress. That was a PSA. Yeah. yeah, yeah but that They're was good. that was important. I need people to know this. OK. And. Uh, uh, you'll never change my mind on tipping in America. Now, how it is in other countries, hey, I respect customs yep. wherever I go. Yep. All right? But in America, that's the standard. If you want to play ball, play ball. There you go. All right? All right. So other things that, you know, directing styles that were introduced by Tarantino is obviously nonlinear storytelling. Yes. And I think, now correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say... The one movie that doesn't have, no, there are two movies. I'm just thinking out loud. I could be wrong. Jackie Brown has a pretty straightforward narrative and. But it's also not his. It, correct. It's Elmore Leonard's yeah. novel adap adapted for this. So. And then <clears throat> yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has a pretty straightforward narrative. There's a couple little flashbacks, but There's nothing flashbacks, that's yeah. like even the Hateful Eight has a very integral flashback. Yeah. So, you know, okay, so. But I would say chronological, yeah. Um, I think Jackie Brown might be the only one. It might be the only one that doesn't have like these yeah. extended flashbacks. Yeah. So that yeah, that's interesting. Um, obviously, the soundtrack and his choice of music. Um, you know, when you watch a movie like Django, and we'll get to that obviously down the road, but he has modern day music in that film. Like when I, it, the way he uses music is it's not accidental everything is no. intentional every yeah. song specifically purposeful purposeful well and i think what was so great about this and we pick up on it in pulp fiction too is when the soundtrack is released it has dialogue from the movie oh yeah preceding the songs oh, and yeah. you go god damn that's brilliant 
for those that are listening it to our, you want to listen to, or makes you want to watch the movie but those that are listening to our patreon exclusive series 101 movies from the 1990s you need to watch episode yeah. eight will have dropped by the time this episode <laughs> comes out yeah and i actually tell a story about <laughs> i'll just say this i tell a story about meeting elliot <laughs> who thought my choice in music was cool <laughs> oh elliot old elliot um where are you elliot Long single takes, long tracking shots, you know, you know, there. And I think when you watch something like Reservoir Dogs, it was out of necessity. You know, you didn't have a big budget. It's like, hey, we got to do this in one long take because yeah. film's expensive, you know. And I love to say things have changed, but he still shoots all his movies on films. Well, he, yeah. I mean, outside of that, um, you know, some of his, you know, the later movies moved into those bigger sets. But he does so much with such a confined space and builds so much suspense and drama into that just lone warehouse yeah. that, I mean, it could almost be a one-man show. Well, not a one-man show, but a confined play yeah. of just that one scene. And he'll do it again in The Hateful Eight. Yeah. It's very I mean, successfully, that, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously, I'm going to end on a level of violence that you know, is really prevalent in Reservoir Dogs, obviously. Um, and I don't want to skip ahead. Um, it gets on a satirical level with the Kill Bill movies and then gets, it's almost gets satirical with every movie moving forward, but it's so grounded in reality in both Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I'll challenge that too and say that in, in Reservoir Dogs, we don't get the jewelry store. We don't no. get the heist. We do get these couple of snippets in there. But if you were, you know, the the outrage that was out there when Reservoir Dogs came out versus what you would see in a general, like, television show nowadays. Oh, yeah. It's on par. Oh, it's, I mean, it's could, way above it. I mean, yeah. you could say that this is what started that that progression towards violence not really being okay, but being accepted. Yeah. And it wasn't gratuitous. In no, this. no, it was. I was. I think it was showing that violence has consequences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like it's, like it's not fun. It's not stylized. <laughs> no, he does it in later films, but right. but you know, it's over the top in Django yeah. Unchained. Like the the you know the blood squibs in that movie are just yeah. out of control, and but that's yeah. done on purpose. <laughs> I would say like that. That's one of the biggest criticisms we'll talk about throughout the entire series is. Just this this need to exploit violence, and I think I'm hoping by the time we get to the ninth show, we'll be able to to explain not not so much explain the violence, but be able to say this is who we are. Yeah, oh, yeah. This is this is art imitating life, imitating art. Yeah. And so let's realism. Let's end on the numbers. The numbers, yeah. Um, so the budget, like we talked about, very slim. It was 1.2 million. And I think that was after the Sundance purchase. Yeah. Miramax dumped a little bit more money into it. Yeah. Yeah. And the gross on it was 2.9 million. Which, um, again, 1992, first, one of the first indie films. It's got to be a giant success. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was, it, it was a calling card, though. Yeah. It, it really, everybody, like, there is this story, again, if the legend is to be told, of, you know, when they took this movie to Con, after, after Harvey and Miramax bought this movie, they took it to Con. Yeah. And there was a meet, like, Quentin was summoned to this party afterwards. 
and like the who's who of directors were there, like yeah. James Cameron and all these guys, and they're all like picking his brain about this film. Like, <laughs> like I don't know a director that has had a bigger like, first impact, first yeah. impact in, in history. Like yeah. I, 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 I'm pressed to think about because the Terminator was impactful. Yeah, sure. Um, Jaws was not Spielberg's first movie. That was Sugarland yeah. Express. You know, um, Nolan's first movie, Memento, was yeah, it was there, but it nothing. Maybe Brian Singer and Usual Suspects, but yeah. even still, like no one popped off like this. No, that just went. You know, it wasn't like a, it was on a one-dimensional aspect. This thing just across the board went. It, Pop, 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 and pop, you know they always like to have that saying in Hollywood. What do you got? What are you working on next? Yeah. But everybody wanted to know what was Quentin Tarantino going to work on next. Give me some uh, uh, RT scores on this. So what do you what do you think? Critics. Critics? Some might have been put off by the violence. So I'm going to say 89. Close it was 90. 90. That's, uh, that's today's score. That's so. today. Okay. Oh, okay. I bet it was. I, I'm going to say it was probably a little bit lower, right? I would imagine uh, so because apparently everybody just jumped on the bandwagon of yeah, it's stylistic, but eh. yeah. Um, audience scores. Well, if these are modern day scores, you know who who shits on a Tarantino film? Ninety four. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. Ninety four. Right on. So yeah. Well, we will. Uh, in the next episode, we'll we'll find out exactly what he did do with his next project. Sophomore entry. And I can tell you um, that I have reached out to a certain gentleman who played a major role in the movie for oh, some for some some behind the scenes feedback. So I'm hoping uh, well, I'm not hoping it's going to happen. So <laughs> by the time we get to the second episode in our films of Quentin Tarantino series, I'll have a little bit more exclusive insight as to what it was like on the set of Pulp Fiction. So, Jason, thank you as always, my friend. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. And before we go, just a quick reminder that we are almost done with our series, 101 movies from the 1990s that you need to watch. It's a Patreon-exclusive series. We've got, uh, let's see, episode 8 is already out, so we've got episode 9, then 10, Ah, then then the follow-up. So three more episodes, and then we're going into uh, 101 movies from the 2000s. I'm, I'm... Yeah, I've been so watching forward, a ton uh, of movies. Man, I've been going um, back and forth. Yeah, it's shocking <laughs> how many movies from the night from the two thousands, from two thousand to two thousand and nine, that I only saw once. Really? Like I saw so many movies in the theater. I was like, I'm going back and rewatching these movies. I'm yeah. just like, oh, this is great, or oh, this is not as good as I remember. So the, the, these, this I'm, is. Re- no, I'm super excited because I got to say, I probably watch. Like right now, I'm on a monk rewatch, but um, on average, I watch two films a day. Yeah, I at least um, watch a movie a day, and on a on a good weekend, like if I know we're doing a you know a session, I'll watch maybe ten movies in a weekend. Love it. Um, so I'm I'm so super excited for the rest of this. All right, perfect. So Jason, thank you again, my friend, and uh, my name is Dana Buckler, and we'll talk soon. Oh